Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to our new series called The Hustle. Some of you are like, what does that mean? Some of you know the the dance, right? And that music made me want to do the hustle dance. Would you like me to do that for you? Uh, You would, wouldn't you? Well, ain't happening. Ain't happening. We were brainstorming as a worship arts team, which we have a lot of young staff, uh, and we were brainstorming titles for this series, and all of them were in agreement. The hustle. And I'm like, yeah, what does it mean? <laughs> I had to ask. And they're like, oh, you don't know, Jeff? They're like, that's how you refer to work. Like, you know, my side hustle, my side job is my side hustle. I'm like, no, never heard that before. And so for all of us who are really out of it, consider yourself hip now, all right? The hustle is a way to refer to your job, the pursuit of money, the passionate desire to make more. And what we're about to discover is sometimes our obsession with making money can actually rob us of life. And so don't get hustled by the hustle. You ready? I, uh, my grandmother passed away. I shared that with you a couple of weeks ago. And as I was reading about her life, I noticed a detail that I guess I had not noticed before, and that was that she was raised in the same house that she raised my mom. And the address was there in this little description of her life. And I thought, I've never seen the house my mom grew up in on the north side of Chicago. And so I went online and I put in the address and I found a real estate website that described the house. And there I saw the square footage and it was 3,000 square feet. And I'm like, really? That is a bigger house than I would have guessed. And then I looked a little closer. Oh, that's the lot size. And I'm like, that's a small lot, actually. And the house was 1,000 square feet. And I'm like, you're kidding me. My mom raised in a family of five. They lived in 1,000 square feet. And I just had this, wow, I, I grew up in a house more than twice that size. How much better off did I have it than my mother? And so many of you could relate and say the same thing. As you look back at your parents or your grandparents, they lived a more simple lifestyle than we have enjoyed. In fact, here, let me show you some stats. Uh, Two times, when it comes to houses, let's start there. Today, people, and I'm going to compare to 50 years ago. uh, My life, I'm 48, but let's round up. 50 years ago, when I was born, people had one half the square footage that they have today. Now, to be a little more specific, the average house size has increased by 1,000 square feet. But also, the average people per house has gone down. And so the square footage per person has doubled in the last 50 years. How about that? Dining out makes me hungry. Uh, Do you know that we dine out twice as much as they used to 50 years ago? Cars. Families today have twice as many cars as they used to 50 years ago. You see here uh, laptop computers and iPhones. Back then, they had half as many iPhones. No, actually, they had no iPhones. I just call that category stuff, material goods. They've analyzed it, and they say, we consume twice as much product as that earlier generation. Wow! Two times, baby. The lifestyle has doubled, if you will. Here's some added detail. Also in the last 50 years, public storage, uh, self-storage was not a thing 
50 years ago. And today, I discovered this week, there are three times as many self-storage facilities as there are McDonald's in the United States. Um, This is a booming industry because even though we have twice as much square footage in our house, it's still not enough space to store all our stuff. And so we have to rent out self-storage to store our stuff. Here's another thing. Credit cards didn't exist 50 years ago. And today, voila, you don't even need money anymore. Isn't this a great day to live? I mean, now we don't have space to store all the stuff that we really don't need, that we don't even have money, but we bought it anyways. It's just a a demonstration of the materialistic transition that's occurred in the last 50 years. We are a society frantically committed to maximizing our lifestyle and live in the biggest house, nicest cars, best stuff possible. And we've done so very effectively. We've doubled. And that begs the question, are we twice as happy as a result? And unfortunately, the answer is no. Uh, the, the stats, the scientific data has analyzed the, the emotional impact of this accelerating lifestyle, and they found out that the emotional thing is disproportionate. As we get richer, we get sadder. Here, let me read. This is a, a, a study done by Dr. David G. Myers, professional psychologist, and he wrote in the American Psych- Psychologist Journal. The the summary of his data says this. Compared with their grandparents, today's young adults have grown up with much more affluence. We just saw that. Yet they have less happiness and a much greater risk of depression and assorted social pathologies. Our becoming much better off over the last four decades has not been accompanied by one iota of increased well-being. Isn't that interesting? We bought a lie. Can I just say it as it is? What is the lie? The materialistic lie was if you just had more money, you would, you know, we, we still buy the lie. You know, don't, here. Don't say, you know, I know materialistic people and they disgust me. No, no. Me! I struggle with materialism. It is burning in my soul and it is in yours too. And if you're unaware of it, you need to get aware. Because we're all being swept away by a culture that is sending advertising messages our way. And, and uh, the media and uh, keeping up with the Joneses, everything is saying, man... If you had a house, can you imagine having a house like that? Can you imagine? Look at that car, brand new. Oh, my. If I just had money to spend and do exotic vacations, I would just giggle all the time. That's the belief we have. It's in all of us. And it's a lie. It's just not true. And that's why we need this series. Because money is such a big deal to all of us. And so God, in his infinite love and wisdom, has spoken in. The city of Ephesus, an ancient city in modern Turkey, but it was the fourth largest city in the world back in the days when the Bible, New Testament, was written. It was like Naperville. It was an affluent community, prosperous people, obsessed with maximizing their lifestyle. And God said, they're buying a lie. And the Lord in his infinite wisdom wrote to them 
and to us. It's found in 1 Timothy 6. Now, Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Paul, the author of the letter of 1 Timothy, wrote to Timothy, saying, you need to let your congregation know this. God spoke through Paul. Paul put it in print to Timothy And it needs to be in our lives as well. So we're going to spend four weeks looking at this this plan to destroy the monster of materialism, this insatiable desire for more that's ruining our lives. God's going to give us wisdom to win the day in that battle. 1 Timothy 6. And the first week of this series is entitled, The Spending of Money. Uh, money is, uh, you know, a part of our lives in so many ways. But this particular week, we're talking about materialism leads to us spending and spending and spending, buying and accumulating and accelerating our lifestyle. And it's a problem. You ready? First Timothy 6, starting in verse 6. We're going to be looking at 6, 7, and 8 today. Here we go. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. The first thing I want to point to is how uh, this verse highlights contentment, this concept of contentment. In fact, contentment, if you think about it, is the diametric opposite of materialism. Another way of looking at it is contentment is the cure, materialism is the disease. Materialism says, I must have more, if only I had more. Oh, if I had that, I'd be happy. Contentment says, I don't need more. I'm just fine. I am satisfied with my life, with the present lot that I'm enjoying. Do you see the difference? One is just dying, believing more would win the heart, and pursuing like crazy. Contentment is going, I'm good. Folks, uh, contentment's the issue. In fact, these social scientists who have looked at this trend of escalating affluence and decreasing satisfaction with life have tried to get in and understand exactly the precise dynamics of how those two relate. And here's what they've discovered. Here's another quote, this one from the American Psychological Association. They've done studies with this summary statement. It seems that it might not be money itself that lends to dissatisfaction with life but rather it's the continual striving for greater wealth and more possessions that's linked to chronic unhappiness. What are they getting at? They're not saying that if you are money-wise at this level, that's going to make you unhappy. It's like, no, you can be at any level of wealth. The issue is matter, are you discontent? That's the, the, the heart matter is really what we're getting at here. Those who are buying the lie that, oh, if I just had, I would be so happy. They are the miserable ones. And those who have learned the secret of contentment are the ones who are doing well. And so if I were to ask how many of you want to learn how to be content, we'd all put our hands up because we all want it. So let's talk about how do you get content? The great thing about this passage, three verses, and I believe they lay out three steps to contentment. And so let's go back and let's look at the first one here, uh, verse 6. And let's really uh, study this verse and see what step towards contentment it provides. So godliness with contentment 
is great gain. Godliness with contempt. There's like a plus sign here. The, the, the type of contentment that this passage is describing is the contentment that's linked to godliness. You should know that in Paul's day, in first century ancient world, contentment was also celebrated by secular folks. In fact, the Epicurean philosophers of the Greek heritage, they talked about contentment a lot. And yet their contentment is very different from Christian contentment. Christian contentment is that contentment that's linked with godliness. What is godliness? Godliness is when you're thriving spiritually. Godliness is when you are just flourishing in your relationship with God. Where you're like, oh my, he has forgiven me. He has adopted me. He loves me. He walks with me. He's changing me. He's guiding me. I love life with God. You see, there is a contentment that says, I don't need things because I've got God. He is so satisfying my soul that my insatiable desire for more stuff is gone. Folks, that's Christian contentment. Satisfaction in God. Uh, there's, there's a, uh, C.S. Lewis was the one who quoted this. He says, he who has God and many things has no more than he who has God alone. And the mathematicians among us would say, no, I think that's bad math. If you have God and many things, you do have more than he who has God alone. No, when you understand the heart of it, it's, it's saying that God so deeply satisfies. You know, when you have God, you're like, Lord, I can't believe that I can call the creator of the universe my dad, my best friend. And you say, now I'm going to add an iPod to that. And you're like, keep it. I don't need it. The Lord is fully satisfying my soul to a point where no you know, things are going to add to that satisfaction at all. Let me show you something else in the verse here. It says, this kind of contentment is great gain. The, the Greek translated great gain here is a financial term. It's kind of a play on words. It's saying, some versions say great profit, the, like great windfall, like winning the lottery. In other words, you want to be rich, get contentment with godliness. Isn't that interesting? You want to win the lottery, get rich in God. In fact, let's put that down. Rich, get rich in God. This is the key. The ancient Jewish rabbis would say, who's the man who is truly rich? He who is content in God. The key there is that the amount of money you have doesn't make you rich. The amount of contentment you have makes you rich. There are people who are worth $5 million and are miserable because they look at the person worth $50 million and they say, Oh, can you imagine having that much money? I hope my stock, I hope my business. And they're miserable. Are they wealthy? Well, not really. The person who says, I'm good, I got plenty is the one that's genuinely wealthy. In fact, this concept of being rich in God was coined by Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 12, there's the parable of the rich fool. In this parable, Jesus describes a guy who spends his whole life maximizing his profit and collecting more possessions, and then he dies with an empty heart. Uh, 
he, the passage says, the story says that he builds bigger barns to all, store all his stuff. I guess self-storage is older than I think, but there it is. You know, he's, and Jesus says he's empty. And so the parable ends with this command. Be rich toward God. And folks, I would just ask you, are you rich in God? Here, people believe that the human soul is satisfied with the collection of material things. And they're wrong. The human soul has always been created to be satisfied in friendship with God and friendship with God alone. And the quicker we learn that and prioritize the development of that friendship, the more we will say, oh my, it is well with my soul. I am rich. Not in the worldly sense, but in the sense that matters. I have all I need in Christ. You know, this richness in God became evident to me years ago when I went to Africa. I had the opportunity to visit this little girl that we've been supporting financially for many years. Uh, in Kenya, in the southwest corner, here's a picture, uh, the Maasai are a tribe of very primitive people. And little Panina is a part of the Maasai community. And we had been writing letters back and forth. Oh, to be with this little girl in person was such an incredible joy. She loves Jesus. This children's home that we partner with, they're teaching her about Christ, and her joy was robust. And it's not the joy of wealth. It's the joy in Christ. She, she said, I want to introduce you to some of our neighbors. And around the children's home, there were some houses of Christians who live in the community. And we got to visit one of these houses. And we went into them. Now, ready for, I call it a house. You want to know? It's made of mud. You know, mud huts still exist, yes. And they'd have a single room, one room, where they have a family of nine living in a single room. Dirt floor, mud walls, thatch, which means grass roof. Sitting on, a, They'd sit us on a little rickety wood bench and serve us chai tea. And we're like, you know, kind of like your house, you know, it was a very awkward thing until these Christian hosts said, tell us the difference Jesus has made in your life. And I'm like, oh, we're in my home court now. All right, yeah, let me tell you. And I would share my story. You would not believe their excitement. These Maasai would say, praise the Lord. Oh, yes, that's wonderful. And I'm like, wow. Why don't you tell me the difference Jesus has made in your life? Oh, we will. And they would share, I have been forgiven of my sin and adopted into God's family, and he's changing my life. I have newness of life. Their zeal, their joy for life was just inspiring. And I'm like, you're not supposed to be happy. You live in a dirt house, and you have no electricity, no plumbing, I know people who have tongues, and your joy is obviously way above theirs. What's going on? They've discovered that the human soul has never been and will never be satisfied with the things of this world, but it is made to find fullness of life in God. And I witnessed it before my very eyes. And so going back to the verse point, one is get rich but get rich in God. Okay, number two, verse seven. The passage says, we brought nothing into the world 
and we can take nothing out of it. In this treatise on our passionate obsession with collecting material things, Paul, through the Spirit, reminds us that, hey, let's talk about material things. You do know that you entered this life with nothing, and you do know that when you leave this life and go to heaven, you take nothing with you. And you're like, wait a minute, I heard somewhere it says like two U-Haul trailers of stuff can go to heaven. No, nothing, nothing. Paul's pointing out, guys, it's all temporary. All the stuff of this life is temporary. And to obsess about fading, you know, Jesus says that moth and rust destroy. It's all rotting. It's all melting. You're foolish to make your life about things that don't last. Your obsession should be what's eternal. In fact, let's call, let's call love what lasts. And what lasts for eternity? God and people. And make your, is it okay to have a collection? Sure. But don't make it your obsession. Your obsession should be that which lasts, and that is God in people. And to invest your heart and soul in accumulating things that are just going to disappear is folly. We should not say, I am linked to my stuff. No, my stuff is here today, gone tomorrow. I am linked to God and to the people that I'm praying I can influence. Um, the folly of investing your heart in that which is passing away was reminded to me when I saw this picture of my first car. Huh? Now that's a car. Do you know what that is? That's a Trans Am, my friends. A 79 Trans Am with a 6.6 liter hood scoop, T-tops, flaming eagle. I loved that car so much. Oh, my. Every single Saturday, religiously, I would clean give a bath to my baby. And I would, this is my dad's driveway. I'd come out with a bucket of hot water and soap and I would just, yeah, sing it songs, you know, as I cleaned it. And after I was done cleaning it, what did I do? Waxed it, that's right. I've never waxed a car since, but I did back then. Every said, wax on, wax off, you know, and buff it. I would armor all the wheels and Invested countless hours, and where is that car today? I sold it. I I tried to stop it from rusting, and I failed. The rust won the day, and then I sold it to a guy who got bumps and nicks in it, and it got really rickety, and he sold it to a guy who sold it to the dump, and they smashed it, and I don't know what, melted or buried it. or It's gone. And it's just a reminder to me that the stuff of this world, your house in 200 years, gone. In fact, we should, put tempor- we should hand out temporary signs. And you should go to your house, put a temporary. And to your car, temporary. To your TV, temporary. Your jewelry, temporary. It's all temporary. Remind you that these things that we collect, here today, gone tomorrow. My obsession, we should say. I love what lasts. And that's the almighty, eternal God and people that he has placed in my life. Let's go back to the verse. So get rich in God. Love what lasts. And then verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. 
food, the clothing, the, the Greek word translated clothing means covering. And so most scholars speculate that Paul's actually referring to both a roof over your head, covering your head, and clothes covering your body. So the necessities of life is what it's getting at. If you've got food, if you've got a roof over your head, if you've got clothes to wear, be content, be appreciative of those necessities that God has provided. Folks, are you grateful for necessities? See, the problem is so many of us have bought into the materialistic lie that we say, like that rust bucket car I've got. How can I be grateful for that car? It's an embarrassment. Look at the car my neighbor's got. Now, I'd be grateful if I had that car. And we've come to the place where we say, Lord, if you give me that, oh, I'll be so grateful. No, no. We need to come back and just get to a place where we don't buy the lie that only the better is good, but the basic is good, too, to simplify down to a genuine appreciation for the basic necessities of life. Did you sleep last night with a roof over your head? Did you thank God for a place to rest? Do you have clothes to... uh, Yeah, you do. I can see you and tell you that's good to see. Do you thank God for the clothes... Food, are you going to have lunch today? Will you thank God? Yesterday I had soup for lunch, and I was studying this passage, and as I ate the soup, I had a moment. Normally I just kind of inhale, you know, and I paused, and I'm just like, you know, this is a blessing. It's actually pretty good. And I savored the simple blessings. Some would say, I'm not going to thank God for soup if it's a steak, maybe. But no, we cannot get to a place where we say, Lord, when you give me the big stuff, I'll be happy. Here, let's call it this. Let's call it enjoy little things. To return to a place where the basic necessities, the, the small blessings of God are great blessings in our heart. And we appreciate and enjoy the little things in life. This concept was made clear to me on that trip to Africa. Can I tell you one more Africa story? Here's a picture of the group of us that went to Africa. Uh, This is Rick Smith, a dear friend of mine my whole life. He's actually the permanent missionary who lives in Kenya with those kids in the children's home. Uh, These are all Americans who were on the trip for the short time. This is my buddy Bob, who I've been just dear friends with since high school. The two of us were in one of these mud huts having chai tea, meeting a Christian family, and they asked Bob, so Bob, what do you do for a living? And he's like, oh, I install garage doors. (laughs) And they politely said, "Uh, what is that? And Bob's like, oh, yeah, of course, Uh, let's see, a door. And he walked over, they had the little door to their mud hut with a little sheet hanging across it. And they're like, this is like a door. I installed doors. And they're like, oh, okay. Didn't know you need a profession to do that. You know? But Bob elaborated. He said, but these are really big doors. And they're like, okay, why, why do you need really big doors? And Bob goes, oh, well, in America, we put our car inside the house. You bring your car inside your house. And we're like, yeah, that's what we do. And they're like, why? And Bob says, so they don't get dirty. (laughs) 
me, we're, we're sitting on a dirt floor <laughs> explaining how we don't want our car to get dirty, so we bring it in the house with us. And uh, it seemed embarrassingly foolish as we tried to explain it to these people who just enjoy the simple things in life. In fact, speaking of the simple things, that same uh, people, they gave me this. this. This Maasai guy says, Pastor, receive this as a gift. And I'm like, thanks, what is it? And he says, it's a rangu. And I'm like, oh, what's a rangu? He said, it's a Maasai weapon. It's a club. And sure enough, it's made of a very hard wood, and it's got a ball at the end. And he said, a Maasai can kill a lion with a rangu. <laughs> I'm like, can you give me more? Because if I'm fighting a lion, you know, my rangu is like, stop it. You know, I mean, that was just... And he, he explains to me, he goes, we actually use it as a throwing club. And we went outside, and I, he went, Whoop! and I could not believe the accuracy and speed with which a Maasai warrior can throw a rangu. But then he says, oh, there's so many uses. They keep them on their belt at all times. He said, if you need like a tool, you know, to hammer something or to pry something, he says, oh, the rangu is so many uses. And one of the other Maasai guys, I got a new rangu. And he pulls it out. And, oh! And they were like, oh, rangu is so nice. I'm like, they are getting so excited about a stick. And I keep my rangu as a reminder to me, Jeff, have you lost your capacity to appreciate the stick? Does you need version 7 of that technology in order to appreciate it? You know, going back to the verse, it says, next slide, next slide. But if we have food and clothing and a rangu, we will be content with that. You know, to get to a place, say, oh, I have mastered the art of savoring just the little blessings. You know, when my child sits in my lap, I hold him tight and just say, oh, God, thank you for this. And as I eat a meal, oh, God, thank you for this. As you watch the sunrise, well, we haven't seen the sunrise in quite a while. It will rise again someday. And when we see it rise, to just say, Lord, the beauty of what you've done, the basics of life. I savor. I see the beauty. I see the love. And Lord, you don't need to give me a Ferrari for me to be grateful. I'm grateful. So let's go to the summary, shall we? Uh, God says, you want to be content? Here's the key. Realize the human soul was made to find its satisfaction in God. So get really rich in God. Don't be obsessed with the things of this world that are passing away and going to burn, rust, or be destroyed by the moth. Love rather what lasts forever, namely God and people. And learn again to enjoy the basic necessities of life like food, shelter, clothing, and just say, oh God, thank you. You don't need to give me the biggest and the best. I am grateful for the simple, and I appreciate them deeply. Folks, there is a way to fullness of heart in life through contentment. Now, not only am I talking about the heart condition will be improved, practically, your life will be improved because when you're freed from materialism 
and you enjoy contentment, you no longer have to spend, 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 or buy, 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 and get yourself all out of balance financially. The beautiful financial reality that can occur in a contented heart is that you live under your means. Do you know what I mean by that? There are three ways to live, three lifestyles. There are those who live above their means, who utilize debt to acquire a lifestyle that is above what they can afford. There are those who live at their means, who spend every dime, paycheck to paycheck, and a little stressed out that I hope we make it. And there are those who live well below their means, meaning they could afford a much better lifestyle, but they choose to simplify their lifestyle and have financial margin, which gives them the capacity to save and to give generously and to enjoy peace of heart. Folks, living intentionally well below your lifestyle through disciplined budgeting, uh, oh, there is freedom and wisdom in that. Though the world says maximize your lifestyle, get the biggest house you can possibly afford, get the best car you can possibly afford, the wisdom of God says don't maximize your lifestyle, simplify your lifestyle so that you can breathe. Here, I have homework. You ready? It's to play a game, so don't panic. I love this game. You ready for the game? This game is called I Could But I Won't. You ever played this game? I could, but I won't. This is where you go about your day, and you can do this today. And you could just say, see that car? Maybe it'll happen in the parking lot on your way out. Maybe you should take your kids, you know? And people are like, why are you gathering your family around my car? We're playing I could, but I won't, right? I, I could buy this car. I could, but I won't. You see, this TV, you know, we could buy this for the Super Bowl this weekend, but uh, my credit card company says I got 10 grand I can still spend. I could, but I won't. I choose to take a pass on that. See that house, kids? Maybe we need to do with our kids. See that house? We could buy that house. Mortgage company would give us enough, but I choose not to. Kids are like, why? Because it's better to live well below your means, because there's freedom in the wisdom of God. I could, but I won't. I could own that. That could be me, but you know what? I choose to take a pass. Every time you say, I could, but I won't, you're putting a knife in the heart of the monster of materialism that wants to dominate and destroy your life. Every time you say, I could, but I won't, you're choosing to celebrate the contentment that's found in Christ and the superior way of living that Jesus invites us into. So practice. I could, but I won't. There's joy and freedom in it. Let's pray. Lord, I feel the need to repent, and I'm guessing I'm not alone. You know how I have bowed to the idol of money and stuff, and I've dreamed and obsessed too much about having this, that, or the other. Forgive me, God. You alone are the one who can satisfy my soul. I know that deep down. I repent of my materialistic folly. And I ask for your forgiveness and grace to lead me to a place of deep contentment. And all my friends here as well, lead us to a place of contentment that we've never known before. Help us to laugh deep from the soul because we are satisfied in you. Because we've lost our mesmerization with things that don't last. And we love what lasts. 
Bring us to a place where we can appreciate again the basics of life. Help us to enjoy the little things. Make us men and women deeply content, living well below our means and enjoying the blessing of that margin to give and to save and to relax. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.